Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. As we continue in our sermon series today, I want to begin by sharing something very special and very personal to me. I want to talk to you about my dad, Jay Young. Um, Some of you have heard me talk about my dad, especially if you've been in a discipleship group with me. I kind of begin uh, every discipleship group that we start, uh, that I start at least, by sharing about my father. And my mom and dad had led me to Jesus when I was a kid, and um, my father changed the trajectory of our family legacy. Like there was three generations leading up to my dad in his family of alcoholism, abuse, neglect, and divorce. And in 1979, my father broke that cycle. He broke that chain. And this past week, I went back and I watched the eulogy that I gave at my dad's funeral. My dad unfortunately passed away of ALS Uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, and uh, hundreds of people showed up to my dad's funeral. My dad was 57 when he died. Hundreds of people showed up to his funeral to share stories about how he had impacted them, especially in the second half of his life. And and the question that we've got to ask is, how did my dad impact so many people? And, And what we see from the story of my dad's life in April of 1979 in a Volkswagen Beetle, that my dad drove to sell life insurance door to door. My dad was eating lunch in his car and he chose to give his life to Jesus after listening to Jerry Falwell on the radio. And Jay Young, at that moment, he tied his legacy to Jesus. Everything that followed, every, every relationship that he had, every prayer that he prayed, every, everything he left behind and everything that he gained over the course of his life following that moment is because of Jesus in my dad. You see, he is connected with God. And when my dad became connected with God, he changed the legacy of our family. He changed the trajectory of my life, my mom's life, and actually our lives too, because this church would not have been planted without the faithfulness of my dad. My dad probably wouldn't have adopted me and I would be living a completely different life right now and redeeming hope would not exist had it not have been for the faithfulness of my dad. And so I find it appropriate that today is, uh, we're talking about my dad's life verse, actually, and that's in Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, if you're watching this online, if you have your Bibles, pull them out. If you have a, a, something on your phone, turn to Mark chapter 8. And, and, you know, as you're doing that, I really wish that everyone watching this video could have met my dad. My dad would have loved all of you. He would have loved our church. He would have loved to um, enjoy a cigar with me on the front porch of our house in Clarksville. He would have celebrated the work of God and he would have celebrated how many people have come to faith. My dad was an incredible man who had led many people to faith, discipled many men and women. My mom and dad did marriage counseling um, for a number of years. And I just remember the faithfulness of my dad for over 15 years, he met with the same group of men in our house. And some of the earliest memories I have of my father was seeing him meet with a a group of godly men who in the last weeks of my father's life drove and traveled from all over the country to say goodbye to him at his deathbed. But here's the deal. 
even though you weren't able to meet my dad, most of you watching this were not, I'm privileged that as we talk about being a family that follows Jesus, as we talk about being connected with God, that as we explore this message, you're going to see some of the messages that my dad taught me over two decades of being my dad. You see, the question that I have for us today and the question that is really driving this message is what if your legacy is not what you do between life and death, but rather who you follow? What if your legacy is not what you do between life and death, but rather who you follow? See, we're in this series called Connected, and we're talking about our vision as a church and how we long for a meaningful connection with others, within a church family, with God, and with the world around us, but we often struggle to have those connections. So as a reminder, our vision is this. Our vision is that we exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. And two weeks ago, we talked about being connected with others within a church family. We talked about being a church family. And today we're talking about following Jesus and specifically um, about being connected with God. And so the, the, the thought is, is that how does, how does this vision play out? How does this vision within Clarksville play out? Why do we need a church called Redeeming Hope here in Clarksville when there's other gospel-centered, godly churches around? Well, uniquely, we're talking about today being connected with God, about following Jesus is central to the idea of being connected with our creator and really kind of trying to show our unique perspective on what it looks like to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And I find it very interesting and beautiful that my dad's life verse is kind of a central passage. It's a wonderful passage to kind of illustrate what it means to follow Jesus and be reconnected with God again. So our main point for today for our sermon is this, that our church is a family of faith connected together by a common vision to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. When we follow him as our savior, we learn to die to ourselves, to receive his life, and we are reconnected with God who changes everything about us. So we're going to talk about three points today with our message. A family connected to Jesus the Christ. Second, we're going to talk about a family connected to Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. And finally, we're going to talk about a family connected to Jesus from death into resurrection. So let's begin with a family connected with Jesus the Christ. Look with me at Mark 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, as they were walking, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And and he asked them, he said, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So as we begin to look at this beautiful story of Jesus, Jesus is walking with the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. We think this is probably a couple of weeks, um, uh, the weeks leading up to his passion, which means his death and his trial, and his his trial, his death, and his his resurrection. And and so Jesus is is walking with the disciples, but there's something very interesting that happens here uh, as it relates to people who are disciples. We're going to talk about what a disciple is in a few minutes, but um, there's a very specific way that rabbi 
rabbis would train disciples. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. He was teaching them how to understand his way, the way of interpreting the scriptures. And so he's got this motley crew of teenagers essentially following behind him. And how, how a rabbi would walk with his disciples was a rabbi would walk in front and the disciples would walk very closely behind the rabbi. And this was done for a few reasons. The rabbi was leading them, right? And so they wanted a visual representation that they are following the teachings of this rabbi by literally following him as he walks around. But another thing too is that as the rabbi would walk, he would kind of turn his head and communicate or talk or teach his disciples as they were walking between town and town, between teachings to teaching. So Jesus would literally be teaching his disciples as he was going from town to town. And that will come into play later, but they're walking up to Caesarea Philippi. It's set on a hill, okay? And Jesus is leading them, turning behind, talking to his disciples who are very closely behind him. And then probably following behind Jesus a little bit of ways is a big crowd of people that are kind of now following him, listening to him teach from city to city. And Jesus turns and asks his disciples, directs this question to his disciples. And he asks them a teaching question. He says, who do others say that I am? So some uh, people were saying that Jesus was like John the Baptist. He was just a reincarnated John the Baptist. That was a modern prophet and healer, a forerunner. So that, that some people are confused and they think Jesus is like John the Baptist. Some people say that Jesus is Elijah, who's the greatest prophet in the history of Israel, okay? And some people are just saying he's like one of the prophets of old. He's bringing the ancient wisdom of God to the world around them. So the crowds see Jesus as someone important, but they have no clue who he really is. They have no understanding of his true identity. So, so Jesus is beginning this teaching by saying, who do others say that I am? And then Jesus turns the question to the disciples and he says, but who do you say? that I am. Obviously, the crowd's answer was not sufficient, right? And so Peter pipes up immediately and he says, you are the Christ. Now, it, it's very important for us to understand what this word Christ means. It is a title, not just Jesus's last name. So it's not like Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name, right? Uh, it, what, what it is, is it's a title. And really the best way to say it is every time you think about Christ, it's, it just put a, a, a the in front of it. It's Jesus the Christ. Uh, this is, it, it, what, the Christ was meant to be the fulfillment of Israel's expectation of a Messiah, of a savior that would come and save the nation and ultimately save the world. He was supposed to be the anointed one, the one that's been promised from of old. And what Peter is saying here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises of a savior who would one day come and save us all. So he's saying, you are our savior. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one who was promised. And so he's affirming that Jesus is the Christ. He is the savior. And Jesus is helping them. He's asking these questions to help them see that he's not just simply a prophet, that Jesus is God himself. Now, when we fast forward uh, a couple of decades later, Paul is writing to the church of Colossae, and in the book of Colossians, it kind of helps us give an even greater, more full understanding of who Jesus really is. Look with me at Colossians 1.15, it'll be on your screen. It says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It also says that, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. My friends, what this is saying, what Jesus is saying, by affirming that he is the Christ, what Peter is affirming, and what Paul explains in greater detail, is that Jesus is God. That he is the image of God. So he is, he is God incarnate. He is God made flesh. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. That Jesus created the world with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, that the three of them, as the Godhead, created the world together, that Jesus holds the world and he holds the church together. And that final phrase, he is the fullness of God. If you want to know who the Godhead is, if you're confused about God's character, if you're reading the Old Testament, you say, this doesn't quite match up what I've always thought about God, you have to look to Jesus to understand who God is. So at Redeeming Hope, we long for you to be connected and to follow Jesus, who is not simply a prophet, not simply a good person, not simply a good example for us to strive for. We are connected with and we follow the God of the universe who became flesh and bone, the one way back to God, the one way back to himself, the singular savior of the human race, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our savior. My friends, we are first and foremost a church family that is connected to Jesus the Christ. Now we move on. And so they, they, Peter affirms that Jesus is the long-awaited savior, right? So, okay, great. Now, now we got to go tell people about it, right? Of course, that's the first thing they want to say. Jesus affirms it. Jesus says, yes, you are right. Uh, he is the Christ. But the next words out of Jesus's mouth are very strange. Starting in verse 30 of Mark 8, it says these words. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, another, another, another term that he refers to himself as, he began to teach them that, that he would suffer many things, that he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That's what we see in Mark 8. So why did Jesus say the disciples should be silent about this, right? This is the long-awaited Savior promised thousands of years ago, now right here in front of them, and he just confirmed it. So why wouldn't they want everybody to know this? Well, here's the deal. Jesus had a better plan than the disciples about when he was going to reveal that he is the Christ, the Messiah. You see, Jesus is talking with Peter here. And Peter is something called a zealot. That is a title. Uh, a zealots were a, a Jewish faction in the first century that, of course, all Jewish people hated the Romans ruling over them. They didn't want to be subjugated to the, to the Roman government, right? They, they were abused. They had to pay all these unfair taxes. They were in fear of their life. And, but, but the zealots were really interesting because the zealots wanted to physically fight against the Romans to fulfill this messianic prophecy. 
They wanted the, the Savior. They thought the Messiah, the, the Christ, was going to come and lead them in a physical, political warfare against the Romans to free them from their current situation. So they wanted to politicize Jesus. They were trying to politicize him. People wondering, is he the Christ? Is he a prophet? How is he going to help us? The zealots were probably thinking, how is this Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, how is he going to help us against the Romans? They wanted to win a political overthrow of the government, and they wanted to use Jesus to do so. They wanted to narrow this understanding of salvation from thousands of years back to their current political situation, their current physical situation. But my friends, Jesus' public revelation of himself as Christ was so much more powerful than Peter could have ever imagined. Now, I want you to fast forward a few weeks from now. Remember, they're walking up to Caesarea Philippi. It's the middle, probably the middle of the day or the afternoon. Jesus is talking to them and, and he essentially says he's gonna die. And he tells them, tell no one about this. And so a few weeks later, they're in Jerusalem. Jesus has been arrested in the middle of the night. Jesus is put in chains. Jesus being beaten. He is at an unfair trial in the middle of the night to try Jesus without any valid witnesses against him. And Jesus is in chains and blindfolded. And we come to these words in Mark 14, starting in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst. Remember, this is dark, night, Jesus, in chains. And he asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now remember, in chains, blindfolded, at a secret, unjust trial, in the middle of the night, in front of his accusers who are lying about him, the God of the universe willingly submits to these chains. He is preparing for his final suffering and death at the hands of the Roman oppressors of his people. And it is here that Jesus publicly reveals himself as the Christ. This is not the savior the Jews were looking for. This is a savior in weakness, not strength. This is a savior in submission, not power. This is a savior in persecution, not authority. We would never have chosen to do this this way because my friends, this is what marks the Messiah. This is what marks the savior. This is what marks Jesus the Christ, suffering and rejection. And we see in this text that going back to Mark 8, that Jesus is saying he's going to do four things. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And he's going to rise again. So it says he's first going to suffer. It says he'll be rejected by all of the religious leaders of the day. So this is directly juxtaposed to Peter saying that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. But he's saying no one's going to recognize it. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, everyone who is in a place of religious prominence is going to reject that Jesus is the Christ. They're going to reject him. Then it says that he's going to be killed. And this is where it would just blow the disciples' minds, and specifically Peter, because remember, Peter was a zealot. So he was thinking that Jesus was going to lead the charge against the Romans, the Roman government, to have an overthrow of the government. And so when he says he's going to be killed, 
This is just, they don't even have a framework for understanding how Jesus could be both the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, and how, how could that work if he's di- dying? How could that work if he's dead? How can he save Israel and bring freedom if he's in the grave? They would have no context for this at all. Completely confused. And then he says this, that he will rise again. And Jesus continues to clarify this in subsequent passages, but it's like the disciples don't even hear it. It's like disciples don't even have an understanding of this. It's like they totally forgot about it because when Jesus rises from the dead, like he said he would, they're shocked by it. But Jesus told them all along that this was what was going to happen. So my friends, as we look at this, at Redeeming Hope, we long for you to be connected and follow Jesus who is God, but we want you to follow the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is God, who as God consciously knew he was going to be rejected. He willingly walked into suffering and death, and who victoriously defeated death to bring us back into a connection with himself, his Father, and his Spirit. So Jesus did all of this to bring us back into connection with God. And so we are a church family connected to a Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. So of course, Peter is here and he had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but he can't believe this. This is like blowing his mind right now. He wants Jesus to save them from the Romans. He doesn't want his savior to die. So this is what Peter does. Look with me at Mark 8 verse 32. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Jesus rebuked Peter back and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter rebukes Jesus by taking him to the side. Now remember, this means that Peter, who's supposed to be a disciple, who's supposed to be following behind Jesus, goes up to Jesus, becomes equal with him, pulls him to the side, and begins to tell him to stop talking like that. And he says, you just proclaimed yourself to be the savior of the world. Stop saying such crazy things. Now, why would Peter do this? He literally just said that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's acknowledging that Jesus is God himself. So why would he then immediately following Jesus' statement about his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection, why would Peter do this? This makes no sense unless we understand the context. The context is that Peter is a zealot and he is scared. Peter wants a win. Suffering, rejection, and death don't look like winning to Peter. He doesn't think that that's a win. And in his anger, in his desire to see his version of God's kingdom come, Peter lost sight of the true win, which is the salvation of all mankind. And so he became fearful that maybe Jesus wasn't the savior that he thought he was going to be. And this motivated the rebuke of his master. And it's easy to look back 2,000 years later and say, oh, Peter was just dumb. He just didn't get it. But my friends, isn't Peter's blindness our own? I have such difficulty trusting God when I suffer or when I see others suffering. And I don't know about you, but I struggle to see how suffering can, can be redemptive. I struggle to see how suffering can produce salvation in my own life, something beautiful in my own life. And, and I often doubt God's goodness in difficult times. And 
And I think that's most of us, isn't it? If we're really honest with ourselves, that's most of us. So a couple of questions. Are we comfortable being with a God who suffers? Can we be comfortable with a God who submitted to the authority of his oppressors in order that we may be saved? Are we comfortable with identifying with God's suffering, seeing our own pain as a mechanism of his will and even his grace towards you and to others? And are we seeking to use Jesus to accomplish a political or social tool to bring in our own kingdom? Or do we follow him as truly God, as truly our king, and truly our Lord? My friends, we naturally don't want to follow Jesus into the death of our own will, our own agenda, but that's exactly what he's calling us to do. And after Jesus rebukes Peter for saying this, he calls the crowd around him. Remember, it was Jesus leading, the disciples following closely behind, having this intimate conversation. Peter rebukes Jesus, pulls him to the side. The whole caravan stops. But there's all these people. There's a whole crowd of people following Jesus. And so then we get to these words in Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He essentially says, hey guys, he turns around and and he says, hey guys, come here. Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So Jesus' first statement in response to rebuking Peter, he wants to make it abundantly clear as he says, I want you to come after me. The call of Jesus is to follow him. That's actually what it means to be a disciple. That's why we say we follow Jesus together as a church family. Disciple equals follower of Jesus. It's very simple. We can say a disciple is many things, but a disciple is at its most basic understanding of the term a follower of Jesus. That means that a disciple goes where Jesus goes. A disciple walks where Jesus walks. And a disciple does what Jesus does. So that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And what discipleship is, is the process of walking closer to Jesus and helping others walk closer with Jesus. So that Jesus not just tells us the invitation is to come after me. He says, if you were to come after me, and then he makes three statements. There's actually a three-step process to becoming a disciple. Aren't you so glad that Jesus gave us a three-step process? Because he's clearly laid it out right here. And the three-step process begins first with, he's saying, deny yourself. My friends, we all have an inclination for self-protection and self-gratification. And the call of the Christian is to deny the immediate to follow the eternal. Jesus says, first off, deny yourself. Your own natural inclinations are more than likely going to be wrong. There's something you have to deny. But then he says, secondly, take up your cross. Now, if you were in the first century, this would have astounded you. Because, listen, right today, we see crosses all the time, right? We see them in popular culture. People wear them around their necks. They even wear them as earrings, right? But the cross wasn't this happy religious symbol 2,000 years ago. It was an instrument of death. It was a torture device that everyone would have known. The most gruesome torture to have ever graced this earth is the cross. 
And so to be crucified is to die a horrible, terrible death. And when you say you're in excruciating pain, that word excruciating comes from the, the central word for the cross. They literally made a word to describe pain out of the cross. So there's nothing in our modern culture to compare this to, but the closest thing is an electric chair. When you think of electric chair, you don't think of something positive. You think of an instrument of death, don't you? And at times, if not used properly, it can be an instrument of extreme pain and torture. And so what Jesus is essentially telling them, he says, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Pick up your instrument of death and follow me. My friends, the call of the Christian is first to deny yourself. And secondly, it's to pick up your instrument of death, to pick up your cross and to die to yourself. That's the second thing. Take up your cross. Then the third thing that Jesus says to do in order to come after him, to follow him, to be his disciple, is to follow Jesus and follow me. Now, where was Jesus going when he picked up his cross a few weeks later? Where was he going? He was going to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place where he was to be crucified, the place of his death. My friends, you and I are not called to pick up our electric chair and go to a field of flowers. We're called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus to Golgotha, to follow Jesus to the death of ourselves, to follow Jesus to the death of our selfishness, to the building of our own kingdoms like Peter was trying to do, to follow Jesus to the death of our immediate self-gratification, to follow Jesus to the death of our comfort, to follow Jesus to the death of our complacency, to follow Jesus to the death of our fight to work harder, do more, and be better. And what does all of this world matter if you lose your truest self, if you lose who you truly are created to be? My friends, the truest self, our truest self, is meant to follow Jesus and to be united with God again. See, Jesus' death is the only way to true life. Jesus wants you to thrive. He wants your marriages to thrive. Jesus wants your deepest needs to be satisfied. Jesus wants you to have a singleness that is a source of contentment and not anguish. Jesus wants you to grieve your sin and run after his righteousness. Jesus wants you to follow him with your life and your experience. And he wants you to follow him into the resurrection of your own heart. Do you want those things? Those things sound pretty good, don't they? Here's the deal. If you want those things, you have to go to Golgotha. You cannot get to the resurrection power of an empty tomb without the difficult road of the cross. You have to go through the difficult road of the cross to see the resurrection power of an empty tomb in your life. Jesus says, come and die. Why? So that you might live. Give up your life to gain it. And this is the upside down nature of Jesus's kingdom. Do you want newness of life? Go to the ancient of days. Do you want ultimate purpose? Submit to Christ's purpose for you. Do you want to gain your life? Lose it. Do you want to live? Then you must die. And here is the beautiful, tragic truth of our church and the gospel is that the greatest work that we will do as redeeming hope, the greatest work of our church, your greatest work will be to die. And our greatest struggle 
will be to give up our own self-salvation efforts. The invitation of Jesus is to lay down our lives before the author of life so that he can give us his life. Let me say that again. The invitation of Jesus is to lay our lives down before the author of life so that he can give us life. When you seek to save your life, to grasp a hold of it, it's like grasping a hold of sand in your hand. The harder you clench, the more will come out. When you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But when you lose your life in Christ, you find it. So Redeeming Hope, we are a family that is connected to Jesus the Christ. We are a family connected to Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. And we are a family connected to Jesus from death into resurrection. So my dad used to do these incredibly random things. He would sometimes come to my, he had these weird sayings and random things he'd say that were just like really comical in retrospect. Because I was a young kid and I'd be playing in my room and my dad would pop his head in and he'd look at me and I'd look at him and then he would say, for whom does the bell toll? It tolls for thee. And then he would leave. He'd just like say the most random things. And I wouldn't be scared. It would just be very confusing to me. And my dad would just say the most random, weird things. And he had about seven or eight phrases that he would say very frequently. And most of them I didn't understand for years. And some of them I still don't understand. There's a few of them that I still don't know where they came from. But the one phrase that my dad used to say that I know where it came from was my dad say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? My dad used to say that to me all the time, and I can still hear it. It's like he's in the same room with me right now. It's like he's in my living room talking to me right now. And, and my, that's how my dad, like it was such a part of my dad's ethos. It was a part of how my dad lived is, what does this world matter if you lose your soul? What does anything matter? So my dad died on March 29th. And um, uh, uh, of course we grieved deeply the first few days and we planned the, the funeral, the celebration service for my dad. And then I sent an email out to everybody that I could. I let my dad's former coworkers, his friends, and um, of course many people had already known about when the service was going, but I wanted there to be like an official invitation for people to, to join my dad's celebration service. And so I want to read to you the first lines of that email that I sent out. So the subject of that email was on the true life of Jay Young. As I'm sure many of you know by now, on March 29th at 7.19 p.m., Jay Young experienced victory over his battle with ALS. He had a difficult last few hours of life, but as with the way he lived, he was courageous, loving, and strong, even in his deaths. His last words were to his wife and son were, I love you. As a man devoted to Jesus, he lived his life without regrets or compromise, faithfully serving his family and Jesus Christ, even during the difficulty of his last days. Now here's a question I have for you. Do you want your children to be able to say this about you on the day of your death? Do you want people to look over the course of your life and see that you died faithful to Jesus? That you served Jesus? That you left a legacy that reflected the character of Jesus? See, most people define legacy as the decisions we make between life and death. So the idea is that kind of the cumulative effect of our individual choices in business or relationships, they will determine how a man or woman will be remembered. But you see, dad wrote over the legacy of brokenness in our family history. He wrote a new story. He created a new narrative that was penned with the ink of Jesus in my father's life. 
The curse was reversed in our family history because my dad followed Jesus. You see, my dad's life demonstrated a different definition of what legacy is. That legacy is not the decisions that you make between life and death, but rather the person you follow, who you are connected with. And so if you're joining us and you look over the course of your life and you don't know whether or not you're a follower of Jesus yet, maybe you're on the fence about it, maybe you're curious, maybe you've got questions. If you look over your life and you have not put a stake in the ground to follow Jesus yet, I want to encourage you to do so today. I want you to believe in the work of Christ for you. I want to encourage you to die to yourself, to commit your life to him so that you may live. Believe this today, this moment. You can pray and receive this new life that Jesus has for you, offered for you, earned for you, ready to give to you. Now, if you look over the course of your life and you can identify a moment where you've you have made a conscious choice, volitional choice to follow Jesus. Here's the deal. Christ is your life. He is the ultimate good. But it is so easy to forget this. It is so easy to feel disconnected from God, isn't it? It happens to me. It happens to your pastor. It can happen to anybody. It's easy to forget these simple truths of Jesus, that he died and rose again. He's calling us to die to ourselves, to submit our life and will to him. But my friends, even when we feel disconnected from God, He is gracious to us. And even when we wander, he gives us very simple practices to come back into a felt connection with him. And so we already talked about this idea of how do you deny yourself, pick up your instrument of death, and follow Jesus. Well, there's actually ways that you can do that. There's simple ways, simple practices to incorporate in your life. The first is being in in a community following Jesus. That means joining a local community church. Be a part of a local family of faith that's following Jesus. And then join a group where you're going to read the Bible with others, explore Jesus with others. You're not meant to do this alone. We talked about this at our last message. You're not meant to be a lone ranger Christian. So join a church in a group. Second, spend time connecting with God. So that's reading the Bible, prayer, submitting yourself to God. That's what, that's what he wants for you. He wants to connect with you on a personal level, on a relational level, and you can do that. And it's not just about getting your quiet time done. It's not just about rotely reading a couple passages of the Bible and going about your day. It's really doing this with a heart to connect with God and with who he is. And then finally, share your table with others. Be on mission. Invite people over to your house. Invite people to come and share life with you as you follow Jesus. Here's the deal. When you have Jesus, when you cherish Jesus, when his life works in you as you submit to him in prayer and sacrifice and in service, you will find that you experience this resurrection life more fully and more completely. And momentary affliction, sufferings, pains, and struggles will only serve to remind you of the truth of Colossians 3.3. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have a life that is given to you, offered to you, the life of Christ. And as a family, as a church family, we want to be connected with God through following Jesus. And when you follow him, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And nothing can touch you. Nothing can ultimately harm you. Even if you die, you cannot be ultimately harmed because your life is secure in him. Thank you so much for watching this online gathering. 
We hope you have a good rest of your week. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.